Now for this month's special series on ReachMD, focus on future medicine. We're looking ahead to pivotal breakthroughs and technologies that will transform healthcare in the coming years. Understanding the mechanisms through which viruses and animals mutate and emerge as human pathogens help us to predict and restrict the impact of natural pandemics and intentionally spawn virulent diseases. Toward this end, the cultivation of complex synthetic viruses is a promising area of research. Looking into the future, will these efforts allow us to subdue viruses and animals before they emerge in human populations? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Future Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Mark Dennison, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Dennison is a leader of research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on the creation of a synthetic SARS-like virus that is helping us understand the origin of the SARS outbreak. Welcome, Dr. Dennison. Thank you. Dr. Dennison, just to begin with, how do you build a synthetic virus? Well, the tools are, are quite readily available. The first thing we do, of course, is work with the NIH and the CDC and all of our institutional biosafety committees to be sure that what we're doing is being done under the safest and most secure conditions. But to answer your question about the actual construction, we first identify from sequence databases alignment of sequences and develop what we think is the sequence that we want to construct. Then we work with building it into, into small fragments or cDNA fragments and take it to commercial companies that are available for synthesizing DNA fragments. We ask them to synthesize the fragments. They then send those to us and we then assemble them in the special biosafety level three laboratory and use those then to introduce or drive the whole assembled genome into cells. And then out these particular viruses are capable of directing synthesis of virus directly from the genome and cells. Now, this is very carefully controlled from the government and such? Well, we work in a special biosafety level three laboratory. And uh, every stage of our research is controlled from the level of, of course, the research funding, but, but we have taken special initiatives to uh, work in what I sort of call an open source approach with between the institutions that are involved, between uh, a regional policy ethics and law corps, and with interaction with the NIH to be very clear about what our goals are, uh, why we're doing the work, what the critical research questions are, and then why this particular approach is essential rather than standard approaches. Dr. Dennison, review with us uh, just for a second. Uh, how do you determine the sequence? Well, we have, did not in this case. This was done by investigators in, in China and elsewhere. But basically, the strategy is one that all clinicians would appreciate. It's sampling of animals, in this case bats. I'm not sure who the unfortunate people who were who got to do this job, but taking <laughs> bat rectal swabs, uh, taking the material from those swabs, isolating out the RNA genome, and then doing what's called reverse transcriptase uh, polymerase chain reaction, or RT-PCR, sequencing to, in a sequencing facility to identify particular sequences from coronaviruses. Now, the virus your team synthesized is characterized as the largest synthetic replicating organism ever made. Can you put in context for us uh, the significance of this accomplishment? Well, I think the significance is that it's incremental, it's evolutionary, and perhaps a, a little revolutionary just in terms of the approach. Uh, there are many efforts to make synthetic genomes and organisms, the largest of which are bacterial 
genomes, which have been the genomes themselves, the synthetic genomes have been published by the J. Craig Venter Institute, but they have not yet been used to generate a replicating organism. So smaller viruses have been made synthetically, such as poliovirus, but those were from viruses that were already known to be capable of replication, and they were simply reproduced synthetically. Okay, so you've got the synthetic virus. Now, what do you do with that, and how does that help you really understand the disease? The virus that we generated is, in fact, what we think of as a precursor to SARS, not SARS itself. And so SARS, if you think of it evolutionarily, had been in animals and then in humans, so it may have distanced itself substantially from the original virus. So it potentially human antibodies made against SARS might not be effective at neutralizing or blocking the original virus that might have come out of animals. So one of the important components for us is that if we have the original animal virus, we can track how it became SARS in animals, and we can also test reagents, antivirals, and vaccines against the original virus itself. Now, is this really identical to the uh, animal virus? Um, yes, except for one important component, that it was in or the original animal virus intact would not grow in cells. What we had to do was take a small piece of the SARS spike protein and put it into the bat virus so that it could then enter into and replicate in the Vero cells, the same cells that are used to grow SARS. Well, this is an incredible. How much time does it take to actually synthesize a, a virus? Well, it's like working in my workshop. The first table I build takes me a long time. But once I know how, it doesn't take very long. And in fact, if uh, as a sort of a, a guesstimate, I would say that if someone gave us a sequence now and everything went clearly and according to plan, and, and everybody did what we needed, probably within a week or two weeks, you could generate a synthetic virus from a sequence. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Future Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Mark Dennison, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We're discussing the creation of synthetic viruses to respond to emerging infections. Dr. Dennison, you mentioned that it might take a week or so to synthesize a virus. That seems remarkable in an incredibly short period of time. Years ago, uh, when we first started doing this, how long did it take? No one's been making synthetic viruses except in the last three to five years. So that standard approaches would have been to try to grow the virus in culture and then to try to understand its biology, whereas the molecular biology and the details of its replication would have been limited and taken perhaps a month to years to really understand in detail. Do you expect in years to come that the synthesis of viruses will become actually more expedited? I would expect so. One thing we're interested in is working with all the different systems that are emerging around the nation uh, to, with sequencing and commercial cDNA synthesis and uh, analysis of gene expression in different animal hosts to try to really integrate those into a plan which could be implemented in case of a of a new epidemic. Are certain viruses easier to synthesize than others? That would be my speculation, of course, that sm the smaller the genome and the more that is known about it, the easier it is. For example, the 
poliovirus genome, as I mentioned, is like 7,000 nucleotides. The coronavirus genome is about 30,000 nucleotides. But there are poxviruses and bacterial genomes that, of course, are, are much, much larger and thus more complex. But the strategy, there's, there's nothing potentially different or more complex about the strategy, just the implementation. If you can culture a virus, is there any reason to synthesize that virus? Now, that's a good question, and I, I think my answer is yes, and I'll give you one example. If I could culture a virus, let's say a new bat coronavirus, but I wanted to be able to introduce multiple mutations. So if I know across all coronaviruses there's 30 different mutations I could introduce which would irrevocably attenuate that virus or make it less virulent, potentially as a vaccine, I could go to that original sequence, and then I could synthesize that original growing virus with all of those 30 mutations at once, a strategy which may take months or years to do if you did it by standard approaches of one mutation at a time. Now, talking about mutations, we talk about these mutations that allow these viruses to uh, jump from animals to humans. Can we learn to fight these viruses before the jump? That's an interesting question. I think the answer would be yes, and, and one way is, is, is knowledge of what they do and how they grow and how they jump. So, for example, if we knew that a virus was coming out of particular animals reproducibly, we might be able to go back, if we could grow it, to study a vaccine that potentially could be used in that animal source, say if it was a domestic animal source, and block the replication of the virus in the animal host to reduce the risk to humans. Now, how far are we uh, from actually doing something like that? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to see how people respond to our work. <laughs> uh, I think, theoretically, it can now be done. Practically, it would have to have a target that people felt was important enough to take that kind of approach. One example of vaccines where vaccines are being used, of course, in animals would be like a rabies vaccine, right, where there may be bait that's laced with a rabies virus vaccine, live attenuated virus, in areas where there may be endemic rabies to try to reduce the load of rabies in an animal population. We recently interviewed a colleague of yours, Dr. James Crow, about the reconstruction of the 1918 flu virus. And we talked about the security under which that laboratory must operate. Is that similar to your work? We operate under the, the levels of biosafety and security that are implemented for SARS. SARS is not considered to be a select agent or as high a risk as the avian. Why is that? I think because of the limitations that it demonstrated in its spread, its transmission, and its maintenance in human populations, whereas the influenza virus that Dr. Crow was describing working with was the one that obviously killed millions of people in 1918 and 1919, and the mechanisms by which that occurred are still not completely known, and so the potential risk to human populations are considered to be much higher. Dr. Dennison, uh, some of us, including myself, I'm sure are wondering, uh, these regulations and, 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 and the control, tell us specifically, what is that like? It's actually, uh, I'm... I'm also involved in biosafety regulation and policy on a regional level in the southeast and, and at Vanderbilt. I think one of the things I can emphasize here most clearly is that communication among investigators and regulatory agencies and biosafety is really our best security. That is, that understanding how to work safely with a virus and to uh, prevent its transmission is really the safest way to do it. But we have a specific laboratory where we work under um, under completely negative pressure environments so that nothing can escape. We have redundant systems which can control all of that. So if one system fails, we basically have two additional backups. 
and this virus is not uh, capable of spreading readily in the air, and so our biosafety cabinets and all of the rooms and all of our equipment is meant to just keep it in a very small space. Are the investigators like yourself uh, tested frequently? We have guidelines in place for being sure that we have cool bank blood so we know what our circumstances are. The most important thing, however, let me reemphasize, is the approaches and, and basic biosafety approaches to working with any virus are just as effective with SARS as they are with a non-human pathogen. And so if we work with it correctly and we follow the guidelines and we are in communication with our biosafety committees and with people that regulate this work, then really it's, it's quite safe to work with. How have you shared your information and your research with other physicians and researchers? We've shared it in many ways, in many open forums, obviously by our publication and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and multiple open fora, including programs on emerging infections and biodefense, American Society for Virology, and another fora that where scientists gather. So this is really, there's, there's no component of this that we feel needs to be precluded or, or, or hidden from anybody. Is there anyone in the country that is doing something similar? There are many groups that are, are interested in the questions of synthetic biology. Like I said, those are working in the epicornaviruses, such as, as polioviruses, uh, and I'm sure other people are, are considering these approaches to more rapidly be able to make attenuated uh, vaccine strains of viruses by introducing multiple mutations. So as clinicians, we're thinking you're making synthetic viruses. We're learning about these diseases. How far will it be from the synthetic virus to actually making a change or modification in our treatment regimens? Well, of course, in our case, we're more interested in prevention, right, uh, response and prevention. And uh, we're working on the cutting edge of these particular viruses. If, if it was a virus that became a endemic human virus, then I think the application would be very immediate in terms of our ability to think of testing antivirals, uh, testing vaccines, and thinking about how to apply that to blocking an epidemic. Uh, can the information that you obtain in, in your research be extrapolated to other viral diseases? I think it's possible to use these approaches to study really the origin of any epidemic or pandemic virus. It also might allow us to think about how other viruses, for example, transmit in domestic animals or transmit from animals to humans. Ultimately, the approaches we take could be really used to understand bacterial infections as well. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Mark Dennison. We've been discussing the creation of synthetic viruses to respond to emerging infections. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment Focus on Future Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Future Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.